0: The reading for today is Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And house was next...
1: All right. Thank you, Laura. Good morning,
0: Arcadia. How y'all doing?
1: All right. Good to hear that. Um, If you are new today, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you in. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia, uh, and we're glad you're here. We've just had an influx of all kinds of new people, and so I'm looking around, and I'm going, I don't know most of you, it seems like. And so, hello. Glad you're here. Love to connect with you sometime. Uh, We are obviously in... Acts chapter 18 today. So turn in your Bibles there. We're going to go through the first 23 verses. Um, But before we get to there, I've got a couple of other quick announcements that I just want to mention. One I've been thinking about and stewing on for several weeks now, but the first one is this. Um, When Tammy was up here, she talked about Uh, The three ways of connecting in a church and the second one was to come to the weekly classes or and get involved in a home group, which is what we call redemption communities. Uh, I want to remind you that we are uh, doing a midweek Bible study right now on Wednesday nights. Uh, We're we're doing a four week study right now on uh, gospel centered friendship in the church. And we've already had two weeks of that. This week, Wednesday is, is uh, my turn. I'm going to be teaching on friendship and affinity in the church. And what does that mean? and what, and what does that look like in terms of, of a uh, gospel-centered view of that? Uh, should be a good time looking forward to uh, seeing you there. I'm also going to have a, a guest that I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, interviewing during that class. So it's at 6:30 in this room. Uh, and we'll go until about 740. Uh, if you're going to bring children and need childcare, please let us know so that we can make sure that we have that staff properly. Uh, here's the other thing. This has been on my mind for a while. It's been interesting. Um, we moved over here uh, July last year, July 10th. We had our year anniversary last Sunday. Uh, and then by October, we realized that we needed to add a service. And so we, on October 16th, 2016, we added a five o'clock service um, uh, on Sunday And uh, much fanfare and all that stuff, and it started off, and then, of course, as most things in church do, it kind of dropped off for a while, and we've been monitoring it and looking at it, and it's been interesting. And and I, just in the back of my mind, I've been thinking, this will be interesting to see what happens to the Sunday night 5 o'clock service during the summer, when it's miserably hot, like all the time, and by 5 o'clock, everybody's sick of it, and most people in Phoenix are... All of you right now wish you were in another city right now. I just know that to be a fact, like Flagstaff or San Diego or whatever, but most of Phoenix just leaves, so I was kind of interested in seeing what would happen. Since about mid-April, our 5 o'clock service has been growing, like like kind of crazy. It's been wild to watch that. And uh, since June, our best numbers at the 5 o'clock service have been there, and that rekindled Um, our inspiration for why we did this. There are a number of people who just simply cannot go to church on Sunday morning. The world we live in, it's an impossibility for them. And we have a number of people who are coming at 5 o'clock, but also it is available for you to come at 5 o'clock as well. It's the exact same service that we do at 9 and 1045. It is a little bit more relaxed and casual, I will admit, because by then Cody's been dipping into the communion wine. But other than that, it's been... (laughs) Really good. Um, we, the staff really likes it, and um, but one of the biggest things is to let people know who can't come on Sunday morning that we have this five o'clock service. So we're just it's been exciting to watch that thing um, happening. So again, we're in uh, Acts chapter eighteen. This is the end of Paul's second missionary journey, and we're actually going to start, just for 30 seconds, transitioning into his third uh, missionary journey uh, along about verses 20 through 23. Um, But we're going to spend most of our time in Corinth and what Paul does and his experiences in this city of Corinth. And here's the big idea. The blood is important. (laughs) No. Actually, the blood is essential. That's the big idea. The blood is not just important; the blood is essential, and we're going to get to that. We're going to we're going to go through like we often do. We're going to unpack the passage and kind of tell the story, and then we're going to spend our closing time, 10 or 15 minutes, talking about why the blood is essential and why this is so important for us uh, right now. Um, I will tell you, those of you who know me, uh, earlier I be, I came to Christ when I was 27, and. And eventually started being discipled primarily by a guy named Tom Schrader, who was the founding pastor of Redemption Church. And one of the things that he does so well is he takes the Word of God, uh, which is very, very old, thousands of years old, and he's able to show us how applicable it is to our life today. God is timeless, and a timeless God would never produce dated material. And I love that aspect of teaching and preaching, to be able to say, hey, this is what this means to us today. There are also times, and we'll do some of that today, but there are also times when instead of asking specifically or uh, primarily, what does this mean to me today, we also just need to ask, what does this mean? And, and that is really important, and that's what we're going to do today at the end with this whole uh, blood issue, and you'll see more about why I'm very uh, passionate about this when we get there. So let's go back and just start looking at the passage that Laura read, plus extra verses. Uh, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens last week. We were in Athens. It was an exciting time. And he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. I'll show you where that is on, on the map in a minute. We do have a map today. I'm so excited. You all know how I love these maps. By the way, I have a laser pointer too, so very excited. All right. Uh, native of Pontus recently come from Italy, specifically Rome, so way to the west of, of Corinth. Uh, and he's with his wife, Priscilla. So Aquila and Priscilla. Because Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. If you're a Jew, you're out. Just out. And he went to see them. Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. So there was some affinity there. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So his normal pattern, he goes into the synagogue to try to persuade the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks who kind of have the backstories Uh, To the Messiah. So he heads out for Corinth from Athens, which is where we were last week. And uh, it's the last major stop of this missionary journey. And he stays there quite some time. He stays there nearly two years. This is unusual for Paul to stay in a, in a missionary city this long. There are some reasons why he does it. But he's there generally from 50 to 51 AD, maybe bleeding over into 52 AD a little bit. We think the crucifixion of Jesus was probably uh, the year 30 uh, AD, so kind of give you some idea of where we are there. And I want to talk a little bit about Corinth. Corinth's an important ancient city, um, very famous uh, in in the year 146 BC, so this is a little bit more than 200 years earlier, the Romans, as the, they were expanding their empire and trying to f- kind of flex their muscles, they destroyed Corinth because Corinth was pushing back against the Roman Empire and didn't want to be a part of that. But then about 100 years later, in 44 BC, the Romans then came back and rebuilt Corinth and, and refounded Corinth, so it's been a city now for a little over a... 100 years but it was founded this time as a as a roman colony so they're completely under the law of the romans its location is 46 miles pretty much east of Athens on something called the Achaean Isthmus and Isthmus is a small piece of land that is between two or three very large uh, bodies of water and so it's in a strategic place because it has access to the Adriatic Sea, the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea as you'll see on the map, let's look at the map, let's go to the map. So I know it's probably hard to see the, the names of these cities up here, but you'll, you'll get, there's Rome, way over in the west, and that's Italy, of course, and that's uh, Sicily, which is where the Corleone family's from, but I digress. Anyway, um, there's Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, Berea, down to Athens, and then here's Corinth, right on this little isthmus here, which is about, supposedly about six miles um, wide in the narrowest section, and there's Centrea, another fairly major city that's kind of the sister city to Corinth, okay, Uh, there's Ephesus, which is where Paul is going to go next, he's going to sail to Ephesus, and then we'll see in the passage today that he's going to then sail down here to Caesarea, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Antioch up here, and then he's going to start his third missionary journey this way, he's not going to use the water, he's going to go that way. Um, Pontus, which is where uh, Aquila is from, is up here, so just think about this, this is is a long time ago, they had to walk or maybe ride a donkey everywhere, you're talking about from Pontus, they were in Rome, that's 11, 1200 miles, Athens is probably another 900 or 1000 miles from Pontus, so Aquila's getting around, and, and I don't know where his wife is from, Priscilla. I don't know what, if he met her in Rome or in Pontus or whatever, but uh, they 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 get around. So you get an idea for the breadth now, the geographical breadth of, of what's going on. The first century historian Philo, a very famous uh, historian, said that uh, although Corinth was a, a Gentile city, it was filled with many Jews, and so there, there was at least one synagogue there, maybe more. It was the largest city in the province of Achaia, and it was the most influential city in Achaia, both politically and economically by far. I mean, nobody could touch them. So, I, I always like to do this, I like to think of maybe comparable cities in the United States. I would say think of New Orleans or maybe Miami. That would be kind of, kind of like what Corinth is like. Don't think Yuma, that's way off, you're way off the rails there if you're thinking Yuma. Um, Corinth at the time was renowned, for its bronze artistry, for its abundant sexuality, for its pagan worship, for its temples of prostitution. So last week we talked about how they would bring people would bring food into the temples where the gods supposedly resided. Uh, in both Athens and Corinth, and somebody would go and eat the food, and supposedly the gods ate the food or whatever. Well, in Corinth especially, another form of worship in Corinth was you would go into a temple of the gods, and you they would have temple prostitutes there, and you would pay money to have sex with the prostitute as a form of worshiping the gods. So just think about that. I mean, that's it was part of their economy and part of their worship, a little bit goofy Maybe. Some of you are like, "Mm, maybe not. I don't know, but uh, that's the way it was in in Corinth. And then, of course, worldly commercial economy. Just unbelievable, because you could get to it uh, from so many different ways. Paul had planted a church there. He's planting a church there right now. And over the years, Paul had a tumultuous relationship with the church in Corinth. You know, you talk about uh, the great relationship he had with Philippi and, and with Ephesus and even Thessalonica. Not so much in Corinth. We have two letters in the New Testament that he wrote to Corinth. And there's some, there's some really joyful stuff, and there's some stuff where he's really just kind of verbally punching them in the face. And what's really interesting is that those two letters also reference two other letters that we don't have any idea where those letters are, but he wrote other letters to the church in Corinth as well, including one that was described as a harsh letter. So he's writing to the church at Corinth saying, you guys are really jacked up, and we, we, we got to talk, okay? So he had this... He loved them dearly, but he had this very difficult relationship with them. And this relationship has been studied by scholars for, literally, centuries. Okay? And, and during this time that he's there, The emperor in Rome was a guy named Claudius. Claudius preceded Nero. We've probably all heard of Nero. He's famous for a number of different things. Claudius was emperor from 41 to 54 AD. And in the year 49, we know from history books, in the year 49, Claudius got angry with the Jews and expelled them all from Rome. And here's why. As I understand it, reading the material... Um, There were converted, there were Jews who had converted to Christianity just like Paul in Rome, and they were going into the synagogues there, and they were proclaiming Christ as the Savior, and some people were following, but other people weren't getting with the program, and they started to push back against these leaders, just like they, they pushed back against Paul all the time, and it was causing a lot of uproar, and a lot of problems, and uprisings, and it was just an absolute mess. And so, um... Uh, his way of dealing with it is the emperor was, if you're Jewish, you're out. I don't care if you're a converted Jew or a non-converted it doesn't matter. If you're Jewish, you are out of here, we're done with you. It's, it, here you go, it's kind of like, you know, you're a parent and you're at a volleyball game and you get a little out of control and the referee finally stops the match and says, all right, you're out of the gym. Not that I would know anything about that, but just in case, it's kind of like Claudius is saying, you're out of the gym of Rome, okay? We're, we're done with you. And so that's what, what Aquila and Priscilla are doing in Corinth. And they become lifelong friends with Paul because of the, the affinity. All three of them are Jews who had converted to uh, Christianity, who are now proclaiming Jesus as the Savior, and they were also tent makers. They were tent makers, so there was an affinity there. Well, what does that mean they were tent makers? Well, here, here's what it means. Uh, Paul never took a salary from any of the churches he served. And we think of the Apostle Paul and we think of him primarily as like a pastor and a missionary and a a church guy. And where's his checks coming in? Is he getting direct deposit? And how does that work? Okay, nothing from the churches he's serving. He had to go out and make a living as a tent maker. And that's how he got his income. And then he served the churches. And, 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 And I just imagine trying to do ministry like they were doing. And that was the same for Priscilla and Aquila as well. Think about this. Now they had no real church home where they served in consistency. <clears throat> they were on the move, no real, no no grounded community, so to speak. Uh, the communities that the community that Paul had in Antioch and Jerusalem were, um, you know, he had community there, but he was away from there so much, um, so he's kind of transient. And so were Priscilla and Aquila, um, and 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 you had to go in. And here's what Paul had to do anyway, especially. He had to go into the synagogue and he had to reason with these people, many of them who were not with him, and many of them who pushed back, and many of them who gave him tense and very terse opposition, terse to the extent that sometimes they wanted to kill him. That's really different than today, where frankly, I come, it's okay for me to be frank, I know, everybody gets on me about using that, but anyway, it's, it's easy, there's a lot that's easy about me getting up here on Sunday morning, because most of you Generally, you're with me. You're for me. You're. Many of you are even praying for me as I'm doing this. And I, and maybe you're not against me. There, maybe there's a few of you. Sometimes in the back, there are people that hold up those one to ten cards. And there they are. Look, so, turn around. There they are. So I got a three, a nine, and a nine, and a four point five. So my average is somewhere around five. All right. I'll speak. Thanks God. That's, I had no idea they were going to do that. Anyway. So. But, th- you know, for Paul, there's just always this pushback. You know, every time he goes in there, he's like, well, they're probably not praying for me and somebody might throw something at me. I mean, that, that's kind of hard. But here's the big one. I think this is the biggest one. Their income came from building tents. So they had to do all this church stuff, but they still had to go out and work. They had a career. They had to, they had to put their time in. So today it would be like somebody going to a construction site and framing all day just so that they could serve the church at night and on on the weekends, it would be somebody who's a food server or maybe a barista or an IT specialist, or or, or a graphic design artist or a financial advisor or whatever it is. It, so that they could then serve the church. I mean, can you even? Oh yeah, some of you do that here, right? We had a couple of them up here. I mean, I mean, Brianna's a financial advisor, and she and 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 she wants to be able to. You guys are doing that as well. So you get it. You get it. Now, I know I said there's not going to be a lot of modern-day application, but I had to bring that one up. And the reason I do stuff like that, one of the reasons, is because I know that any of us can can start to read Scripture and kind of start gliding over it, and we sort of sanitize it, and and, and we sort of just give it a superfluous Reading and we, and we look at it as just trying to gain some information. And if we don't bring some humanity to these texts, it's hard for us to really get why this does apply to us. Why this goes right, it goes into our brain, but it also goes into our hearts, into our passions, into our, into our pathos, into what we're, we're desiring to do. And, and so this is real for these guys, and it's, it's real for you as well. And so he reasoned and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greek God-fearers who were in the synagogue and in the city, city. but he never tried to do it through clever rhetoric or creative oratory. Uh, there's a passage in his first letter that we have uh, to the church at Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it's one of my favorite passages, especially as somebody who teaches communication at, the, uh, at Paradise Valley Community College and who used to teach communication at Fuller uh, Seminary here in Phoenix. Um, I used to read this my first day of a new quarter at Fuller Seminary with all my new students. I would read this passage to them, and I would say, I'm going to teach you communication theory. I'm going to teach you all of this stuff, all these methodologies. But if we don't get this right, there's no point in even being here. There's just no point for us to be here. Here's what Paul writes. And I, when I came to you, brothers, and he's referring to this time now in the book of Acts, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And that and that idea of wisdom there is worldly wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preach Christ crucified and resurrected. Even last week in Athens where he's doing all that funky pop culture stuff and really connecting with them, he still got around to Christ crucified, which means he also talked at some point, although it's not explicit in the text. He had to talk about the cross because otherwise why would he be resurrected? So it's Christ crucified and resurrected. That's what Paul preaches. That's what we proclaim at Redemption Church as well. And I was with you in weakness And in fear and much trembling. Because this is not my power and my wisdom and my intelligence that's doing this. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Notice spirit is capitalized there. The Holy Spirit. The power of God. That your faith, this is the best part. Here's, Here's the conclusion of it. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You and I are saved and we are sanctified and we are sustained not by our power, not by our wisdom, not by our intelligence, but by the power and the love and the grace and the mercy of God through his Son Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is really, really important. Really good stuff. So, the next paragraph, we move on and we see what happens uh, when Silas and Timothy arise, arrive. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So the Jews know the backstory. They're the ones going, hey, we're waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. Paul comes and says, the Messiah is Jesus, the Messiah has come. Isn't that good news? And many of them are like, "Mm, no. Now just think about that, okay? Messiah come, Messiah come, Messiah come, Messiah come, Messiah come. Paul says the Messiah has come. No. Messiah come, Messiah come. Isn't that odd? That's what he's up against. This this kind of rut that they're they're in. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's the verse that we're going to come back to uh, later. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, His house was next door to the synagogue, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, let me tell you, some of you know how much I love the names in the Bible. If if we ever got together and started a breakfast cereal company, the first product we'd put out is Crispus, because it'd be a biblical breakfast cereal, I'm telling you, and it would sound right, right? Okay, we like crispy breakfast cereal. Anyway, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, the ruler of the synagogue believed, and together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. That's an interesting qualification. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul is occupied with the word of God when, when Silas and Timothy come. And, and essentially what that means is Paul's saying, look, let me take care of preaching and proclaiming. You guys take care of pastoring and, and, and shepherding and all that. And that's a good thing that somebody is, is, is occupied with that. But uh, obviously the results are mixed. There's a sense, there is a sense in which, it, in which if you're not getting at least a little bit of pushback on the gospel, that maybe you're really not preaching the true gospel or preaching God's word. Because there is stuff in here that can be offensive and hard and difficult to understand. And without the power of the Holy Spirit helping us, it can be really challenging. And so if, if nobody's ever disappointed with what the Bible has to say, then, then that might be a bit of a problem. And it's not the Bible's problem. It's how it's being uh, treated. Um, and so Paul listens to them, and he finally at one point he shakes out his garments. What does that mean? It, it, here's what it means, It means it's a, it's a symbolic way of saying, alright look, uh, for whatever reason you're not getting it, the spirit's not working, whatever, so I'm going to move on from here. If, if you guys want to re-engage, I'll be around, but I'm moving on from here, I'm hoping to find a field where there's some fruit that we can actually harvest, so I'm going to move on here. And then he says the blood thing, because your blood be on your own heads. And, and Paul, who was an expert in the Old Testament, had the Old Testament memorized, was, a, was an expert in it. Um, most scholars say, well, he's thinking of Ezekiel chapter 3 there. So the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 3 specifically says, look, if a person is presented with the word of God, the reality of God, the love of God, if, if, if a per- here you go, if a person is presented with the truth of the gospel and they reject it, then the blood is on their their own blood is on their head. It's nobody else's fault. It's a way of saying there's nothing else that can be done for you. It's nobody else's fault. Your blood is what's going to pay for your sin, and it's not going to be a happy time. And that's what Paul is saying. He's using this Ezekiel chapter three reference to let them know. I, I, I'm sorry. I wash my hands of you, and I'm not responsible anymore. You have made this d- decision. Okay? So, it, here you go. Some of you who are note takers, I think you need to write this, write this down. This will be life-changing for you. Here you go, are you ready? Okay. In life, there are going to be direct consequences for our decisions and behaviors. You got that? Is that life-changing or what? But we live in this world where we don't want those consequences. Paul is saying there's a direct correlation between your decision, your behavior, and a consequence. And it's not gonna end well. I'm here if you wanna come back, but I gotta move on. One of the things that Scripture teaches, the Bible teaches throughout, from beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, is this understanding of sowing and reaping, of planting and harvesting. And what Scripture says is that it's foolishness for you to think that you can sow or plant in this field. And then go over to this field where you didn't do any of the work and you can reap or harvest from this field. So Paul says it this way when he writes to the church in Galatia. He says, he says if you're going to sow to your corrupt flesh, to your sinful desires, if your whole life is going to be about uh, planting your life in your sinful desires and your sin and, and in all of this wickedness, in that corruption, what you are going to reap, what you'll harvest in your life is corruption, is the death of, of corruption. That's what you'll reap. You can't sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit, but if you sow to the Holy Spirit, if you sow to the the Messiah, to Jesus, if you're in God's Word, if you sow there, you will reap eternal life from the Holy Spirit. And there's no third way, there's no other way to get at this. There isn't something where you can kind of mix it up a little bit. You can't sort of take Jesus halfway. You're either in or you're out with Jesus. Now, obviously, there's going to be some, we got to grow and we're still going to deal with our sin, but either we're in with Jesus or we're out. There's, there's none of this kind of keeping a foot in both uh, camps. And so, they very important to understand that. And many of the Jews and Greeks came to Jesus, but many of them pushed back. Look at, again, verses 9 through 11. I'll reread it. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. There's some stuff here. Um, Paul has a vision or a dream or whatever it is, an encounter with God at this particular time and it's an encouragement from God. He's saying, don't stop what you're doing, go on. And then he says, he says, no one will attack you. And I'm like, "I'm, re- I'm no one will attack, good, it's going to be easy, great. No one will attack you and then to harm you. In other words, you're going to be attacked. They're going to come at you. But they're not going to be able to harm you because I'm going to be there with you. My people are going to be there with you. I'm going to work through people. And I'm going to protect you. This is going to be one of those times where you have to trust in the provision and the protection of who I am, Paul. Because they are going to come at you. But you're not going to be harmed in uh, the midst of this. It's going to work out. Now, most times when Paul faces opposition, as we've already seen, it forces him to move on. But not in Corinth. He stays for a year and a half. And even longer after that, as we'll see. But here comes the, the attack in Corinth, verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the proconsul would be like the governor or the ruler over that region for the Roman Empire. The Jews made a united attack on Paul, the Jews that rejected Jesus as Messiah and who were very upset with Paul. They made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, before the judgment seat of the proconsul. So that would be Gallio, saying to Gallio, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now they left that purposefully ambiguous. What was really happening was in their minds it was contrary to their law, the Mosaic law, the religious law, but by just saying he's he's calling people to worship contrary to the law, they're hoping that Gallio, who's maybe not quite as smart as as he should be, is going to hear it contrary to the law and think he's breaking Roman law and then do something about it, like execute Paul or Put him into prison. So they're trying to be clever with their rhetoric here. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, "So here you go. Paul has this vision. He's promised by God. No one's—they're going to come at you, but no harm's going to come at you. I have my people there." God begins to use Gallio in the midst of this, and Gallio probably didn't even know he's being used. But he begins. Paul was ready to make his defense, and Gallio jumped up and said, "Here's what I have to say." If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Galileo is not as dim as the Jews at Hope. He's smart. He knows exactly what they're trying to do. O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Well, this crowd had whipped themselves up into a frenzy, and so they decided to seize Thosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue at that time, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, so Gallio was pro-council or governor. We know this from the history books from 51 to 52 AD. And the Jews brought Paul before his tribunal, or his literally his formal judgment seat. They thought they had a case, Uh, Judaism was a sanctioned religion in the Roman Empire at that time and they were trying to tell Gallio that Paul was doing something completely off uh, of the sanctioned list of religions and they're trying to get him thrown into jail and they thought it would be easy but from Gallio's seat he perceived it differently he's saying this is just another sect of Judaism we've dealt with this before there have been other sects of Judaism this is no big deal I'm not gonna do anything about it you guys settle it yourself and oh by the way Quit, quit making a lot of noise and quit having all this uproar and uprising and everything because if, if you keep doing that, I'm going to bring in the forces. Now, get out of here, okay? The primary job of a Roman governor was to make sure that there was no trouble. That was his job. And I'll tell you, if you and I were in Gallio's seat, we probably would have, we might do the same thing. We'd be looking at this going, I don't want any part of this. I don't even understand it. It's your own problem. Get out of here. But then they walk out and they see Sosthenes, who's the ruler of the synagogue, who seems apparently is allowing Paul to do some of this. And so they're, they're, they're mad they're, they're, somebody's going to get beat. That's essentially it. They see Sosthenes there, they grab him, and they beat him up. It, they're in such a frenzy. It's just kind of sad, really. But we also see there's two synagogue rulers. So Christmas was one. But he became a Christian. That kind of disqualifies him to be the synagogue ruler. So he's hanging out with Paul. Paul is part of the church now. So they had to appoint a new um, uh, synagogue ruler. It was Sosthenes. Here's what's funny. Apparently, after Sosthenes got beat, he's like, tell me about this Jesus guy again. Now, it's not in the, in the text, but we do know that he leaves with Paul Because Paul eventually writes to Corinth, as we said, a couple of years later, from uh, Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, and here's what it says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So in in about the course of a year, Sosthenes gets promoted to the ruler of the synagogue, then he gets beat up, then he becomes a Christian, and he leaves Corinth with Paul, so he's out of there, okay? Okay. And now he's with Paul a couple years later in Ephesus. So then we get to these last six verses before we get to talk about verse uh, six. So now we transition out of the second missionary journey and into the third missionary journey. So after this, so it's been almost two years. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, which would be where Antioch is, his sending church, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea, that's that sister church of Corinth, he had his uh, hair cut because he was under a vow. And I'll explain that in a second. And they came to Ephesus, and we left them there, and he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. So apparently he went in one, one uh, Sabbath, reasoned with them. They said, hey, can you stay longer? And he said, No. I'm on my way back to my sending churches, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus, and God does will, because for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what happens to Paul in Ephesus, and it's a wild and funky ride, my brothers and sisters, and when he had landed at Caesarea, uh, which is the coastal town, the port town for that whole area, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem. And then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, strengthening all the disciples. So he heads out on his third uh, missionary journey. So Centrea is a, a another city that's the sister. So think of Minneapolis, Saint Paul. Corinth is Minneapolis, Saint Paul is Centrea. He goes there, and he and he's got this vow thing that he's taking care of, and so. You you look this up and you find out that there was a form of something called a Nazarite vow that many early Christians would take. And a Nazarite vow was an outward symbolic um, uh, exclamation of your gratitude for what God has done in your life. It was was a testimony. I hate to use it, kind of like when you get baptized, it's an outward testimony of, of the inward reality. You're, you're, you're letting people know, God has been so good to me that I've taken this vow for a particular period of time. And generally, a Nazarite vow had two, two components. Number one, it, the outside component was you couldn't cut your hair or shave your face for a certain amount of time, whatever that is. Nothing would get cut, Okay. And then number two, for inward, you had to abstain from all alcoholic beverages for the same amount of time. And I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out, all right, what in Arcadia would look something like this? And, and I kind of got halfway there. It's like no shave November, only you, you can't drink craft beer during this. So that would be a problem for most Arcadians, I think. So that's kind of what it looks like. Um, And we'll see this Nazarite vow again in Acts 21. But on his way back to the sending churches, he stops in Ephesus, spends a minute there. They ask him to come back and he says, if the Lord wills, and the Lord does will. And he gets to Caesarea, which is the port for both Jerusalem and at that, uh, for him anyway, it was also Antioch, although Antioch's quite a ways north. And and I just want to mention this. It's a little bit of a technicality, but it might be helpful to you because it was helpful to me in reading scripture. It says that he went up to Jerusalem... And yet Jerusalem is south of Caesarea. And then he went down to Antioch, but Antioch is north of Jerusalem. Now in our vernacular, the way we talk is if in the United States is if something is south of us, we go down there. And if something is north of us, we go up there, right? So we go down to Tucson and up to Flagstaff. It, it, amen. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in the first century, the way they did it is if, if the elevation went higher, you would go up. So Jerusalem was higher than Caesarea, even though it was south. And then Antioch was lower in elevation than Jerusalem. Antioch straight north of Jerusalem, 140 miles. But you would go down to Antioch because it was a change in altitude. That helps you as you're reading scripture trying to figure out the map placement. The first time I read this, I'm like, why is Jerusalem? And I looked at a map, I'm going, I thought he went up to Jerusalem, but he went up in, in altitude. Anyway... He goes to the Mother Church in Jerusalem to give a report there, then heads to his primary sending church in Antioch, gives a report there, and then he goes out back out and he heads to Ephesus eventually. So let's, let's wrap up by going back to chapter two, verse six, and looking at that. Uh, Paul looks at the Jews primarily that are rejecting the Messiah, and he's saying, and he says, and he screams, probably really, he says, "Your blood be on your own heads." Blood on your own heads. Uh, We need to go there. We need to talk about this. Uh, In our culture, I don't know if you've ever noticed, you ever thought about this. There's a lot of sayings that we have in our vernacular that are kind of centered around blood. Have you ever noticed that? We use the word blood a lot as metaphors for stuff. There's bad blood. Ooh, there's bad blood between them. Or somebody is cold-blooded. You ever ever been around somebody who's cold-blooded? There's blood on your hands. Here you go. Uh, somebody will lay off a hundred workers and they'll look at the corporation and say, there's blood on your hand. Not actual blood, but it's it's an expression. There's blood in the water. It means the sharks are circling. Um, They smell blood. Blood brothers, blood initiation, blue bloods. I like blue bloods. Anybody else like blue bloods? I'm going to draw first blood. Here you go. That's a big metaphor for hockey. Especially playoff hockey. Who's going to draw first blood? What does that mean? Who's going to score first? That's an important, whoever gets that first goal. very. Important. Who's going to draw first blood? There's, there's new blood. There's red-blooded. There's hot-blooded. Check it and see. I got a fever of a hundred foreigner. Anyway. You're going to sweat blood. There's blood on your head, as Paul said. And, of course, there's blood sacrifice and blood atonement. I want us to think about what Paul said to these people in the context of the, the law and forgiveness and the sacrifice for sin and the crucifixion because they are all about blood. The law of God doesn't exist without the blood. The forgiveness of sin, the sacrifice of sin, the crucifixion none of them happen without blood. The blood is essential. Per God, blood atones. Blood saves, blood forgives, blood justifies, blood pays the ransom. Blood is what brings holiness, and it is blood with which God makes his covenant with us. Both the old covenant and the new covenant are in blood. Blood is essential. The book of Hebrews says that, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, what's the exception? What's the loophole? There is none. This is essential. The whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system was that the animal would shed its blood so that people could be forgiven and justified and and made holy. But the problem with the Old Testament system was that those blood sacrifices of those animals had to go on and on and on and on, they never ended. You were never finished with it. You would go and you'd sacrifice your goat or your lamb or your pigeon or your dove or whatever it was. You would sacrifice it and then you'd walk out, you'd sin again, boom. You need another blood sacrifice so that you can be cleansed of that sin. And so that becomes a problem. But what did Jesus say on the cross? Those three words. It is finished. Those might be the best words in the Bible. It is, you know what he's referring to? He's referring to this constant shedding of blood. He's saying, my blood has been shed now, but it's finished now. There is no more need for the shedding of blood because mine was the perfect blood that atones perfectly. And there is going to be no more. But his blood had to be shed. It was absolutely essential. But that was it, once for all. No more sacrifices. He made the last sacrifice, and it's really the only one that counts. You understand that without Jesus doing that on the cross, we would come in here on Sunday morning, and we'd still have goats, and lambs, and pigeons. And Anybody up for that? See, that's some good news right there, but the even better news is that it unites us with God, And and he shed his blood to do that. I told this story a number of years ago, Uh, in the old property. I don't know how many of you remember it. Uh, Several years ago, kind of in the wake of the movie The Passion of Christ coming out, um, I had an old friend that I went to school with. I hadn't heard from him in years and years and years. And somehow he got my contact information and contacted me and wanted to go to lunch with me and reconnect and all that. I found out he'd become a pastor in one of the mainline denomination churches in Phoenix. So he's a pastor now. So I think it's a couple of pastors getting together for lunch and sat down, we started having lunch, and I noticed he was kind of amped up and kind of agitated and irritated, not at me, but just in general, he, he, and he was kind of, he was, he was really unhappy about the movie, The Passion of Christ, he thought it was horrible, and he started going off kind of on that, and I know, I saw it twice, it was kind of hard to watch, I get that, but he was really upset about, about that, and, and finally he just looked at me and he said, we've quit teaching blood atonement for salvation at our church, we just, we've quit teaching it not going to teach it anymore. I was like, oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. So I'm a, I'm a why guy, you know, kind of like Brianna. Why? And so I said, well, why? He said, well, isn't it obvious? It's, it's, it's offensive. He said, here you go. He said, I would even call it pornographic. I think it's pornographic that we worship a God that would do that, that would, sh- that would need blood to be able to fix our, our sin. That's just wrong. And, of course, being who I, I what, what about what the Bible says? And here you go. He says, well, you know, things change. It was really ancient, and we've gotten smarter now. How many times? Seriously, I hear this all the time. We're smarter now. Okay. All right. So he said that. And and I said, okay, so, all right, let me set that aside for a sec. How are we saved then? What's the what's the mechanism of our salvation? What's the metric? I don't know. Maybe my old business days are coming, but what's, how do you measure this? How do you, you save? He says, well, you just be a good person. I said, okay. So my next question then is, how do you know when you're good enough? How do you know when that happens? And here's what he said. He said, well, you know, we're all, all as human beings, we're all basically good anyway. So, and he said, so, and that was it. Just kind of, so I said, so what you're doing is everybody's coming in, and essentially what you're preaching is you're just saying, hey, you know, you're really good people. Just continue being good. Everything's fine. Yeah? Kind of what we're doing. I said, well, are, do you still consider yourself people of the book? Do you use the Bible? And he says, oh, yeah, sure. I said, well, how do you, how do, you, how do, you do that then? And he says, well, we're, we're very careful about looking in Scripture and figuring out what stuff is, is still really God's Word and what isn't god's word anymore and what doesn't really apply and we don't even think it was god's word in the first place i I was just absolutely blown away check you know that I, i mean what do you say to that you know and now i'm thinking okay here you go i didn't say this i wish i had wouldn't have gotten anywhere probably but i hope i get somewhere with some of you i pray the spirit's working what happened at the lord's supper so jesus is there and he's looking at them. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here and I promise you, just a couple of minutes. <laughs> he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. These are my good works. Now you go out and do good works. Is that what he said? He, and, then, and then at the end of the meal, he, he, he grabs the cup of wine and he holds it up and he goes, this, this is the wine... And really, it's because I really like to party with you guys. It's so fun to be in community with you. It's the best redemption community ever. Wine, you know. So here you go. Jesus teaches all this stuff for three years, and at the Lord's Supper, that's when he went off the rails. That's not what happened. He said, "Here's here's the here's my body, which is for you," and he and he breaks the bread. And, and, and we can get into that. OK, Jesus never had his bones broken. That was part of the prophecy. We understand that. But think about what happened to him. Paul says his body was broken, but when he says that in First Corinthians, what he's talking about is how, really, his body was just torn apart by what happened to him. He was whipped, He was crucified. I mean, his body suffered in the midst of this. So in that respect, his body was actually broken. His body was broken. And, and you think about us, we're, we're messed up too, we're broken, we're torn apart, and what tears us apart? What is it that tears us apart? There's one thing, and it's sin. Sin tears us apart, sin destroys us, and this is a really fundamental way to look at sin, but I think it's a really helpful lens. There's three ways to look at sin. There's our own sin, my, okay, my sin that I commit and that I have committed most of the time thinking it's never going to affect anybody else and hopefully it won't affect me. But what does it do? It ruins me and it breaks me and it affects other people. Amen? Anybody married to a sinner? That was a little quick the way some of your hands went up, okay? Our sin just destroys us. But it's not just our sin, it's the sin of others. Has anybody in this room ever been sinned against by another? Sucks, doesn't it? Okay, so there's the sin of others, and then the third part is just the general corruption of sin in the world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Jesus went and had his body torn apart so that you and I could be put back together in the beauty of the gospel and be reconciled to God and begin to understand what it means to have a whole relationship with God, but also have a whole relationship with each other in our families, and in our marriages, and in our communities, and with our friends. And I know it's really, really hard, but even sometimes at work, try to have these whole relationships. Jesus did that so we could have that. It's, it's not pornographic. It's not offensive. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And then we get to the wine, which he says is my blood. This is my blood poured out for you. This is saying, there was the old covenant, in blood here's the new covenant and the new covenant just as important as in blood but this is the last blood this is the perfect blood and this blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins to be able to make you whole so that when god looks at you he sees holiness and not sinfulness and wickedness and he says once for all it is finished it's a beautiful thing so many people want to come to Jesus, and they hear about Jesus, and they hear about the good things, but, but then they, they begin to look in Scripture, and they go, I don't like that cross, that seems a little violent. I don't like that blood, that seems offensive or pornographic. I don't like the, the biblical sexual ethic, that seems a little bit too constricting for me. I don't like the fact that Jesus said you should pay your taxes. I don't like that, and, and we begin, hey, let me tell you something, it's really easy to start reading this and find stuff you don't agree with and you don't like, but who's God at that point? That's why we come and we pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us so that we would see the better way, the bigger way, the, uh, the, the way of the Lamb, the way from above. And even though sometimes it's hard, that, but, but we have the faith, God fills us with that faith to be able to press into that and live that life of wholeness. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in verses 11 through 15 about the blood. I'm sorry, 11 through 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Paul looks at these people and he says, look, you're going to pay for your sin with your own blood. Jesus has paid for your sin with his blood. Which would you rather it be? And people walked away from Jesus paying for their sin with his blood. It's an astonishing thing. But for those of us who have embraced Jesus, those of us who know Jesus, we know that this is a beautiful thing. It's not offensive. It's not pornographic. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. I say this all the time. I love my wife. I love my marriage. I think it's terrific. Jackie's really, I think, very special but the greatest thing that she ever did for me was be used by God to tell me about Jesus and to bring the gospel to me. It's a beautiful thing. And my prayer this morning is that I, I know there's, in a, in a crowd this big, there are people who haven't made that, that commitment to Jesus. Most of us are there. Yeah, I know. Most of us are Christians. Most of us are going to come forward and, and take communion. But some of us are still not there. And I pray that I didn't get in the way today, but that the Holy Spirit today was the day that that he opened your eyes and opened your heart to this reality. And that God used me to be able to communicate this in a way where you finally go, yes, that's it. That's what I've been wanting and looking for. I'm ready to come to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for... Your, truth and its wor- uh, your word and its truth, and, and we're, we know that it's hard sometimes. And so we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit and the provocation of your Holy Spirit and the filling of your Holy Spirit to be able to come to you through the resurrected Son and be able to live filled in your Spirit and, and be able to enter the kingdom of God and do the work of the kingdom of God and to be people of, of the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.